AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Are you feeling overwhelmed by anxiety? struggling to find restful sleep or plagued by a restless inability to focus it's time to break free from the chains of mental health challenges and discover a path to healthy living welcome to amen university founded by renowned psychiatrist and brain health expert dr daniel amen dr amen alongside a team of esteemed doctors and experts in their fields understands the struggles you're facing and are here to offer solutions from debilitating anxiety to sleepless nights filled with worry our courses are meticulously crafted to target at these specific challenges head on. Join us on a journey of transformation led by Dr. Amen and a roster of top-tier professionals. Say goodbye to the constant battle with your mind and embrace a future filled with hope and possibility. Visit our website today to explore our courses and start your journey towards a brighter tomorrow. Use code BRAIN10 and get 10% off. That's code BRAIN10 and get 10% off your first purchase. Amen University, because your mental health matters. Personology is a production of iHeartRadio. Ernest Hemingway was an American writer of novels and short stories, a journalist, and a sportsman. His unique minimalistic style of fiction strongly influenced 20th century literature, and he won the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1924. My guest today is Mary Dearborn, a biographer and author of six books, the most recent, Ernest Hemingway, A Biography. Ernest Hemingway was born in July of 1899 in Oak Parks, Illinois. 
to a father, Clarence, and mother, Grace. He was the second of six children. He had older sister, two younger sisters, a younger brother, was sort of sandwiched in the middle. And let's talk a little bit about his parents because they were in good ways and not so good ways, hugely influential figures in his life. Let's talk about his father, Clarence, who was a physician in Oak Park. Yes, he was an interesting guy. He was responsible for some of Hemingway's best qualities, or his best qualities. He taught him about nature, introduced him to science. But Clarence had a problem with depression, apparently. We don't know that for sure, but it looks like it. He had some time that he took off, some mysterious periods when Ernest was a boy where we don't quite know what he was doing. But this tendency toward depression got worse and worse. And eventually he was, uh, he diagnosed himself as having diabetes. And back then this was really a problem because they didn't have insulin or it was on the horizon, but not there yet. And he had patients who had had diabetes and he knew how crippling it could be. But in any case, he became what I think of as psychotically depressed. In other words, he was distorted. His thoughts were distorted. He became obsessed with his youngest son and keeping his son with him at all times. And eventually he used his father's Civil War pistol and shot himself. At the time, he was, you know, rolled with it and so forth, but he was devastated. And the same thing was going to happen to him. Importantly, I mean, a couple of really notable things too, when you think about his father. One is that actually his father was not a drinker, was not an alcoholic. And that's important because we often think of that as running in families, but that was not the case. He did appear to have, as you point out, this recurrent depression. And it is important to know that actually there's a tremendous amount, and we'll talk about this further, of genetic loading in this family, that there are many relatives essentially with what either is bipolar disorder or possibly unipolar disorder, in other words, just recurrent depression. And there were numerous suicides in this family. There was the father, there were two uncles, ultimately two siblings. Hemingway goes on to have a son and a granddaughter who commits suicide. That is a lot of suicide in one family, clearly well above what would be expected randomly and definitely makes you think about the genetic biologic loading of this family. Also important is that although it wasn't unusual at the time to punish your child physically, to, you know, spank them, let's say, Hemingway definitely seems to report that his father was mercurial in temper, very, you know, up and down. Again, makes you think about bipolar disorder because of high irritability and mercurial nature, but that when he punished him, it was quite severe. He would take the strap to him and that Hemingway was in fact, in many ways, afraid of his father and had a lot of fantasies about killing his father because he was angry with his father. Again, not unusual for a child to be angry and in the moment think, I wish my parent were dead, you know, or I'm going to think about killing him. However, when a parent then goes on to kill themselves, a child is really set up to feel tremendous guilt because they had these ambivalent feelings. Like they loved their parent, but they hated their parent. They wished their parent dead. And then the terror of like, did my wish have anything to do with, you know, am I in some way guilty or responsible? And we see later evidence of that in, in some of his writings that that was a terrible feeling for him. 
Oh, definitely. There's a story in which he sights his father, puts his father in his gun sights and, you know, is is following him around the yard. And yeah, I think his anger at him was very great, but it was almost all suppressed. The other thing is, as far as alcoholism or whatever goes in that family is, I don't think either of the parents, probably Grace did, but Clarence probably never had a drink. So, you know, you have a problem with these people who might have had addiction problems or alcoholism, and we don't know because they stayed away from any substances. Exactly. That's a good point. And we have no evidence either that the mother was, as you said, drank at all. The, the mother is so interesting because she is unusual for the time. After high school, she goes to New York City. She studies the opera. She's really talented. She's musically talented. She sang with the Metropolitan Opera. What's so unusual for the time is she is driven and ambitious and wants to be working. And not only that, but apparently is the moneymaker in the family, essentially make out earns her husband, who is a physician. And she, like the father, but even more so, has tremendous ambition for her children. Oh, definitely. I think that Grace is um, the real driving force in the family. And Ernest really, he was ambivalent about her. And Grace is like an extraordinary character. And I think you see a lot of Ernest in her, especially just in the sheer energy that she had. It was really remarkable. She had a number of voice students. She put on recitals in their house. They moved into a brand new house and Grace designed it. I mean, she had so many talents and she did make more money than her husband did. And uh, she was really responsible for getting, first of all, valuing the arts in, in her kids. But she had incredible charisma. And I think that's what's something that Hemingway got from her. In fact, it was said of both of them that they would draw out the air out of the room when you were in with them. They were just both very, very seductive, likable. A story that I love about Grace is, well, Grace, obviously, her voice eventually went and she couldn't give voice lessons anymore and she could never sit still. So she took up painting and she was having Ernest, she was trying to get Ernest to show her paintings in Paris and she was convinced she was good. And it went on from there. She gave a a bunch of lectures on literature. But my favorite story was once she wrote to one of Ernest's wives asking, did you get that tapestry that I wove for you? (laughs) You know, and only Grace, I'm sure she did have a loom somewhere. She is the one who really pushed her kids to read and to go to museums and to go to the opera and to, as you said, you know, artistically accrue these life experiences The father was sort of the, as you said, the outdoorsman who was hunting, fishing, camping, and definitely that clearly had an impact on Ernest also. But this was her mothering, let's say, because she apparently wasn't a terribly warm person or a very nurturing person. (laughs) Let's talk a bit about, because there, you know, I think many people will know this story, but wonder what does it really mean that Grace dressed Ernest as a girl and you know, called him her Dutch dolly. There's the famous photo that says summer girl written on the back of it that is actually of Ernest and a sister. And that he really until the age of seven, that could occur. Now, 
I know for that time, actually, it, it was very normal for children to wear dresses. The pants wasn't really a thing yet for little children. And it was very common to dress your child in white because it was sort of considered innocent and asexual. So that isn't surprising. But was there something that went on that was different for the time that might explain this sort of hyper-masculine seeming reaction that Ernest had, that he, you know, became this uber- you know, masculine sort of character almost with all the risk-taking and all the machismo that you you kind of wonder, was there something unusual that went on? Yeah. And that image of him, that machismo image is just so indelible that we tend to want to find it, the beginnings of it somewhere. And it does seem to be an early childhood. And it was common to dress your son, your um, boys as girls. And what was unusual in this case is that he and his older sister, Marceline, his mother somehow wanted to make them be very alike. She had a sort of fantasy that they were twins and she would dress them alike. So you see them both in smock dresses, embroidered dresses, but you also see them dressed up as boys in overalls and their hair was cut the same. At one point they had, I think it was called a Dutch bob with bangs and shoulder length hair. And you can't tell what gender they are. This went on, as you said, until he was about seven. And even so, I mean, Marceline and he, you know, any kind of things about sexuality and gender aside, it, it really, both of them came to despise each other. But something happened in there. And in terms of the similar haircuts, Ernest went on and developed what was really a hair fetish. It's, you know, harmless, I guess it's common, but that really came from his mother. She was interested in hairdos and cut their hair that way. And how did that manifest itself that when you say a hair fetish? A posthumous novel of his was published called The Garden of Eden. And there's a married couple in it who fantasize about getting their hair cut the same length and dyed the same color. There's a fascination with hair color. His mother prized red hair and so did Ernest. But it becomes a major part of his fiction, you know, writing out this kind of genderless fantasy. But we know that actually it became a feature of even his first marriage with the publication of the complete edition of A Movable Feast, the book that he wrote in the last years of his life about Paris. There's a sketch that was cut from it, and it's about him and Hadley talking about getting their hair cut the same length. And they don't dye it. But over and over, he says, it's there's a, like this repetition in there, like, will our hair be the same? Yes, Ernest, our hair will be the same. That I think characterizes pornography. You know, in other words, he writes it again and again. From a psychiatric perspective or a psychoanalytic perspective, really, I would call that a repetition compulsion. The need to repeat something that has felt traumatic as a way of working it through or working it out. And, you know, if your mother forces you to constantly look identical to and be the same and be present with and documented as almost like a twin with your sister when you're a boy, this could definitely have been a difficult and somewhat traumatic situation. 
there's another um, feature that I like, which is their mother made them go and be in the same class. And if you remember enough, that's not like early childhood, you know, things that mold you, but that would have been just awful. So he comes out of this childhood with these parents, with, with these things that have gone on. And I should also add, it appears that perhaps the father and mother also each had a brother that had bipolar disorder. So again, a tremendous amount of genetic loading in this family. He pretty early on appears to, very much like his father, be outdoorsy and adventurous. Can you talk a little bit about like what kind of student he was at school? He did well. He took to it easily. He was especially good in English. And, you know, he had these great teachers. And early on, he started writing for the school paper and this and the yearbook. And he was very sort of active. One thing about Ernest is he never participated in team sports, or he did, but he was bad at them. So he didn't continue to do it. His exploits were like something you did as an individual, nothing working with somebody else. He was always highly individualistic. That wouldn't have, and team sports requires you to submerge your ego in a way that I don't think he could do. I think that's really important and and actually something we can talk about as we move along. But the question as to whether this hyper-masculine reaction was a reaction to the early things or how much of it was really about narcissism and, and narcissistic personality pathology as you will go on to see, this certainly seems to be an issue. And of course, at the heart of narcissistic personality is is tremendous insecurity. And this often comes from, or at least initiated by having particularly a mother who feels that to be worthy, you should be a star, the most special, and who feels that she's the most special and perhaps isn't terribly warm and let's say unconditionally loving. Like, I love you no matter what, but is more, I love you based on your your talents or, and and your talents should be like kind of out of this world, or I don't really value you very much. That seems to have been somewhat the case and laid some of the groundwork for how he felt and insecurities that he dealt with. And after school, it's World War I, it's 1918, it's World War I. He has bad eyesight, apparently, already at that point. So he can't enlist as a soldier, but he does go to Italy. He drives an ambulance and he is a writer. He is essentially a journalist, a war journalist at that point, at that very early stage. And he experiences some really traumatic things, even though he's not a soldier, but he's embedded with them. Oh, yeah. A shell went off several feet from him. And also he got machine gun. There was, I guess it was, you know, the uh, line of fire in front of him. And he picked up one, an Italian officer who was wounded and took him sort of out of the range of these shells and guns. But in the course of it, he got machine gun in his legs and he was badly injured. And uh, it's, affected him for life. I mean, for years and years, people have talked about the wound theory of Ernest Hemingway. But when you're hit that bad, when you're that young and you come that close to death, it's hugely, hugely formative. But the description that I really like is he said he was lying there and he felt his soul go out of his body like a handkerchief and thought he was dying. And uh, because he experienced getting that close to death, There's a sense that he never worried about it again. And that would give you enormous 
sense of your own bravery and courage and talk about narcissism. I think that's, you know, that just fed his, you know, the formation of I am this hero. <laughs> I'm going to invent an Hemingway hero, but meanwhile, I'm the hero. Let's take a quick break here. We'll be back in a moment. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from Brain MD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by Brain MD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from Brain MD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Snag a job is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Are you feeling overwhelmed by anxiety, struggling to find restful sleep, or plagued by a restless inability to focus? It's time to break free from the chains of mental health challenges and discover a path to healthy living. Welcome to Amen University, founded by renowned psychiatrist and brain health expert, Dr. Daniel Amen. Dr. Amen, alongside a team of esteemed doctors and experts in their fields, understands the struggles you're facing and are here to offer solutions. From debilitating anxiety to sleepless nights filled with worry, our courses are meticulously crafted to target these specific challenges head on. Join us on a journey of transformation led by Dr. Amen and a roster of top-tier professionals. Say goodbye to the constant battle with your mind and embrace a future filled with hope and possibility. Visit our website today to explore our courses and start your journey towards a brighter tomorrow. Use code BRAIN10 and get 10% off. That's code BRAIN10 and get 10% off your first purchase. Amen University, because your mental health matters. We do know that for veterans, right, who did the kinds of things that he did, uh, cleaning up body parts from a, a blown up factory, as you said, he had 227 pieces of shrapnel in his legs, which required many surgeries. He was hospitalized in Milan. And that, you know, the as you said, the thought, I'm going to die here, I, I think I'm going to die, is the kind of experience that some people, not all people, but some people do go on to develop post-traumatic stress disorder. We know that, for example, he, in I think his story, Now I Lay Me, 
he talks about the fears of going to sleep in PTSD. That is a major symptom that flashbacks and nightmares and night terrors that have to do with the experiences and that causes a fear of going to sleep. And of course, we also know that unfortunately, he really started drinking heavily in this setting. This is sort of the first, I guess, evidence we have of really heavy drinking, like basically bunches of empty cognac bottles found under the bed. And we also know that this is the first time, a time of many firsts, that he, he probably falls in love with a nurse there. He did. He fell in love with Agnes von Kierowski, who was a nurse there. And he thought she was older than he was, beginning a pattern for the rest of his life of liking older women. Always his wives were older. And and this early, this nurse was a year older, a year and a half older. And it was in his adolescence. And somehow she was kind of the other side of the adulthood line. And that was hard for them both to negotiate because he was in love with her, you know, and said he wanted to marry her even at this age. But yeah, and so a lot is going on there with him after this wounding. I mean, you mentioned PTSD and the, the night and he admits, which is hard, for a long time he slept with a light on, which seems like an odd thing for him to confess to. But he, he did. I mean, he was describing what life was like for him. He, one of his sisters, his favorite sister, would sit up with him so he wouldn't be alone at night. As he said, he's starting to drink. He did was found with all these cognac bottles under his bed. And also when he got home, he kept bottles of liquor in his room. You know, you still have even the father who's made them, both the father and the mother has made the kids take a swear that they wouldn't drink or, or all these other things, including card playing and dancing. He became very quickly, I think, a very heavy drinker. I was a he was not an alcoholic yet, but it was a problem. He was in Italy, and um, after the war, he fell in, or he was he contacted an Italian American club in Chicago, and they would have raucous meetings together. And, and somehow, Ernest got his parents to give two different huge dinners for these Italian Americans, and his father put an end, a stop to anyone drinking anything in the house. But yeah, he was well on his way. Unfortunately, we know that it often does go this way, that people with PTSD are so symptomatic that they may turn to alcohol to try to manage their anxiety symptoms and their panic symptoms. But we also know that, unfortunately, basically developing a substance abuse problem tends to worsen the symptoms of PTSD. So it really becomes a vicious cycle. And then you add to that that he feels that he's fallen in love with Agnes he wants to marry her. He thinks after the war, he's going to marry her. And when he gets home, he receives basically a Dear John letter that says, in essence, I really didn't take this that seriously. And, you know, to me, you're only a kid. I'm kind of more like your mother, which is a pretty brutal rejection letter for a young man. And definitely in the, I need to be super masculine and puff myself up, getting such a brutal rejection, emasculating letter from the first woman you love could really propel one even into more of that behavior, let's say. And then she subsequently marries somebody else. So this is a pretty brutal rejection in an already fragile and tenuous emotional situation. And I think that's important to remember because 
It later comes back in some of his writings where, for example, in Farewell to Arms, he gets her, he gets the girl, but she dies in childbirth. So she also gets her punishment. And I think it's interesting that you see psychologically themes replayed in his writings that have a lot to do with earlier difficult traumas and sort of a way of working it out or working it through. Like he gets what he wants, but he also gets his revenge. Yeah, you know, I hadn't I hadn't thought of it till now, but that brutal rejection, he avoided any situation where a woman might reject him after that. He was, talk about narcissism, he really could not take that blow to his ego that Agnes's rejection represented. And he also was particularly mean about her in a letter to a friend. He said that, I hope when she comes back to the state, she walks down the gangplank from the ship and falls on her face and her teeth get broken and fall out. I mean, it's just brutal. So he hoped for her that she would have some form of castration, basically, because that's how she made him feel. And you're right that clearly he never wants to put himself in that situation again. And so for the rest of his life, he basically marries, has an affair and leaves. And, you know, in other words, he avoids ever being rejected because he rejects the woman first. There's an interesting exception. This is jumping way ahead, but I think it's relevant here. And when he's around 50 and having his first full-blown manic attack, he falls in love with this 17-year-old Venetian girl. And Ernest, he was married then to his fourth wife, Mary. And I think what he did was replace his wives when he felt that, you know, it was time to move on, whatever. I'm going to go with a new wife. And he settled on this woman from a very good family in Venice, beautiful young 17-year-old. And he thought that he could get her. You know, he thought that he had tremendous self-confidence. And he, of course, had been devastatingly handsome when he was younger. And in middle age, he's still very handsome. But when he falls in love with Adriana, he's really an old man. And he looks like one. He's got the white beard and so forth. Of course, Adriana never considers becoming his next wife. It wasn't in the realm of possibility. Her mother was hardly letting her out at all, never mind to be wooed by this married American writer. So he didn't seem to get it that this wasn't going to happen. Well, narcissists don't tend to age terribly well or accept aging and what it might mean. The reality is it, it seems from his writings that his first marriage to Hadley Richardson, who you mentioned, was really at the end of the day his happiest or at least his most stable for a period of time from, as you said, his later book, A Movable Feast, where he says, you know, families have many ways of being dangerous to give a clue to how he feels about the danger of loving and therefore risking being rejected or hurt or left. It's hard for him to stay in something that's happy and be happy. That's right. But I guess I've never, I think that the marriage to Hadley was just really wonderful, but they were really young, you know, and there's a sort of romanticism attached to it. And, you know, he says they were broke in Paris and uh, they didn't have enough to eat and that sometimes he would catch pigeons in the Luxembourg gardens and bring them home to eat. And 
several things like that that just don't ring true. And also, they weren't broke. His first wife, Hadley, had a trust fund. And she wasn't at all rich, but they didn't ever starve. It's a little bit suspect, Mm -hmm. I think. Was this some theatrical image that he was cultivating the poor, starving artist? Oh, sure. That was his thing. And it had to, that fit with all of it, that um, this sort of idyllic young marriage, they're broke, but, you know, they're in love. And then they have this boy who's uh, adorable and he's included in everything they do, nicknamed Bumby. And uh, Gertrude Stein is his godmother. And it's way romanticized. It's interesting because his second wife comes along and she's a Pauline and she comes from a very rich family and she's um, very fashionable. She's the Paris editor of Vogue. She is also a very strict Catholic, but she and Ernest fall in love. And it's a long story. He and Pauline are keeping it secret for a while that they're seeing each other and they're having all this drama about whether Pauline, as an observant Catholic, can sleep with him and so forth. In the meantime, Hadley finds out, and this is just the worst. She confronts him about it, and he does this thing where he says, oh, God damn it, Hadley, if you only hadn't brought it up, we could have all gone along the way we were. You know, we've all known cads who say similar things to get out of things. But that was really pretty remarkable. And then it's kind of interesting. Hadley asked that they spend 90 days apart to see if they really loved each other. I mean, Hadley, regardless of how idyllic the marriage was, Hadley was the most sensible, loving, warm person. Anybody would be lucky to be married to her. But Hadley asked them to spend 90 days apart. And during that time, Pauline went home to the U.S. and stayed with her parents, who were quite Catholic. And her mother is hearing about all this and is really upset and says, Pauline, can't you do something to you know get out of this situation and so forth? And Pauline writes to Ernest that she's having her doubts and so forth. So what does Ernest do? He threatens suicide uh, when Pauline is back in the States. And he can't, he gets very upset if she even talks about something like this. That's very telling. And it does bring up the question that some have had. Again, we can't make any of these diagnoses on a person who's dead and we didn't see. We don't have notes from a psychiatrist necessarily to rely upon. But the question as to whether Ernest Hemingway, really, that whether the symptoms that we're seeing have more to do with what's called borderline personality disorder, which is an intense moodiness, a sexual promiscuity, turbulent, turbulent relationships, threatening suicide if your lover won't stay with you is something that you might expect to hear from somebody who's struggling with borderline personality disorder. His hypermasculinity would fit with borderline personality disorder, as would something called splitting, which is basically a defense mechanism whereby the world for you is split into either you're the best or you're the most horrible. And Ernest pretty much did go very quickly from, you know, who was idolized essentially, or who was totally devalued. And you could go quickly from one to the other, whether it was narcissism Again, he, you know, he certainly said plenty of things to support that. He talked about how he would have liked to be a king. He lied about, I went to Princeton, which he, he didn't actually go to any university, but clearly was an insecurity and felt a need to be grandiose and would make up some grandiose stories 
So whether it was more about narcissism or more about this borderline type of personality, these personality traits drove this seemingly endless sort of, as you pointed out, seductive, unempathic. I must have you. I want to be with you. You're the best. And this manipulation of, you know, and if you're not with me, you know, I I might do something terrible. That's right, I think. And he did have that grandiosity and that became almost a dominant feature in his personality when he's in his 50s and on. And he was possessed of this energy that I think of as, you know, early signs of his mania. He was writing about, at one point, he wrote something like six of his most well-known of his, in other words, of his absolute best stories in a month. Unbelievable. And classic for mania. So this is 1924. He is, describes himself as having high energy, but clearly is, is also sort of irritable, irascible. And he writes, as you said, seven short stories, which are completely coherent and amazing in this short period of time, and describes himself using the words, I feel, quote, juiced, talks about not being able to sleep, reading poetry all night aloud. And that is, you know, the symptoms of hypomania or mania, you know, like not sleeping, super high energy, feeling tremendous grandiosity, expansivity, but also on the plus side, tremendous creativity, original thought, and tremendous output. And those are also features of hypomania. I mean, we have to remember that in these stories, they show this incredible, incredible knowledge of human nature. And he's not empathic in his life at all, but but he sees these subtle, subtle personality features in his characters. That's really part of what makes the story so great. You know, just the other day, I was thinking about it. We always, when describing the macho type that Ernest became, you say, well, you know, they're deep sea fishermen, they're hunters, they're uh, all these boxers, various whatever masculine activities. And why did he feel he had to take up all of them? (laughs) You know, why not just shooting or big sea fishing? But no, it had to be the whole gamut. That's reminiscent, of course, of his mother with learning how to weave. Yeah, that kind of grandiose ambition, I guess I'll say. But also, you know, maybe being driven too by that mother, that mother who really never gave him the kudos, you know, that most mothers would Her response to The Sun Also Rises, which was a tremendous success, was to write to him, how does it feel to have written the filthiest book of the year? She really still could not express her admiration, appreciation, that that would drive him, perhaps, to keep feeling, you know, people in adulthood, it doesn't go away needing your mother's approval, wanting your mother's approval. He blamed her for his father's suicide, which is not unusual, but it starts speaking to this kind of uh, attitude toward women that, you know, we, you saw with Agnes's brutal rejection. But his mother is, um, it's a toxic thing, really, their interaction. And after Hemingway's like 30, I think, when his father died, and after that, he had open hostility with his mother. 
he did arrange to, um, by then he was married to, to Pauline, who had a lot of money, but also he was making a lot of money from his fiction. And he did arrange to send his mother a certain amount, but he talked about her in this really brutal way. And he saw her like twice more. He stayed away from her and treated her in this really incredible way, telling her that she had to listen to him now because he was in charge. And all these, like, they had this, and she was like, she gave as good as she got. She's like, I know, you know, forget it. He had her send him the pistol of his father, the pistol that he used. And clearly this deeply affected him and he continued to talk about it. He, you know, it's not until 1940 when he's writing For Whom the Bell Tolls, but the protagonist you know, the father kills himself and throws the pistol into the lake. Like he really speaks of the pistol. And clearly this is something that continues to be on his mind and again, woven into his stories. Guns remain central to his life. You know, I, on the cover of my biography, there's a photo of him pointing a gun at whoever's looking at the photo and people question it. I really question it too. I didn't want to use it. My editor had chosen it. And, you know, there are a lot of reasons not to. Somebody invoked school shootings. You know, do you really want to have anything related to a gun? But I saw really that his life had been all about guns. He manages to get his fishing boat outfitted with military weapons in the beginning of World War II that he he then goes around looking for German spies for German U-boats. But he also... um sort of inevitably, he was into deep sea fishing. And the photo of him on my cover, he's on a boat. He actually shot sharks and machine gun sharks. He was driven to guns. And, you know, there's classic Freudian psychology. Of course, that's his penis. And that's absolutely part of it. Not to get too, you know, reductively Freudian, but... But he does seem pretty consumed with as you said, behaving in a phallic manner, I should be admired, but as you said, also very consumed with this phallic object of destruction, which had played such a tragic role in his life in terms of his father, but also meant something to him in terms of his bravado, let's say. And unfortunately, at the same time that he is demonstrating this unbelievable talent. I mean, we're really talking about a man who ultimately wins the Nobel Prize in literature, but really changed the face of writing and style of writing for the 20th century and did it in these spurts that, as you pointed out, really bespeak his struggle with bipolar disorder, but the upside of having bipolar disorder that he could be so productive. He didn't write during times when he was very depressed. And in fact, he specifically said, about depression. I felt that gigantic, bloody emptiness and nothingness. I couldn't ever fuck, fight, write, and was all for death. And he had periods of really deep, dark depression where he was non-productive, but he would come out of it and he would have these other periods of productivity. And unfortunately, he continued to drink the entire time And in fact, live in places, specifically live in places where you could drink alcohol because, of course, in the U.S. there was prohibition. But, you know, move to Toronto, you know, move to Paris, move to Key West, where you could lay very low and drink, move to Cuba. It's hard to believe that was completely accidental. And at the same time, I think it's also important to understand when we start to look at his decline, 
that it may have had less to do with bipolar disorder, although untreated bipolar disorder can cause such a decline. But the combination of increased alcohol consumption, which we know because we know there were physicians telling him, hey, you're developing cirrhosis, you know, you're, you're going to die. You really need to stop drinking. But we also know that he had repeated episodes of head trauma, of real head trauma, like an incident where he was drunk and he pulled a skylight down on his head accidentally. It hit him in the head. It had a motorcycle accident during World War II, a car accident while drunk. Later, he goes on to have this crazy incidence with literally two plane crashes in one day and has just terrible repeated head trauma that would give anybody organic brain damage, really aside from even having psychiatric illness. That's a real icing on the cake, but it might be really the cake because that might have been a big part of the problem was his traumatic brain injuries. And he had like six, seven, I think, you know, he got what's probably what the football players get that um, I think it's CTE where you have too many traumatic brain injuries and you have a basically the brain is laid waste to. And uh, I think that did happen in his case. But in every one of those, he drank really fantastically while he had the head trauma. One of the worst ones was in London at the beginning of World War II, and he was in a car, you know, after the blackout, not an alcoholic blackout. And uh, whoever was driving, they came from a party where they were drunk and drove into a water tower and anyway, got badly injured. And he um, convalesced in a hospital in central London and people would come in to visit him. It was the party place in London during wartime. And there's tons of photos of him with a white bandage around his head. And he was drinking the whole time. That's how he treated these traumatic brain injuries. And of course, we don't even know what that does. And we know so little about traumatic brain injury. Well, we definitely know it doesn't make it better. Um, and it probably makes it worse. Let's take a quick break here. We'll be back in a moment. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. 
kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Are you feeling overwhelmed by anxiety, struggling to find restful sleep, or plagued by a restless inability to focus? It's time to break free from the chains of mental health challenges and discover a path to healthy living. Welcome to Amen University, founded by renowned psychiatrist and brain health expert, Dr. Daniel Amen. Dr. Amen, alongside a team of esteemed doctors and experts in their fields, understands the struggles you're facing and are here to offer solutions. From debilitating anxiety to sleepless nights filled with worry, our courses are meticulously crafted to target these specific challenges head on. Join us on a journey of transformation led by Dr. Amen and a roster of top-tier professionals. Say goodbye to the constant battle with your mind and embrace a future filled with hope and possibility. Visit our website today to explore our courses and start your journey towards a brighter tomorrow. Use code BRAIN10 and get 10% off. That's code BRAIN10 and get 10% off your first purchase. Amen University, because your mental health matters. He must have had so much, let's say, natural reserve, you know, intellect to have as many insults to his brain as he did and continue to write the amazing works that he did, you know, some of the greatest works of all time. But it is worth noting that really in the last 10 years of his life, he really didn't. He really couldn't any longer. In in 1950, he wrote, you know, Across the River and Into the Stream, which really is not seen as a particularly good book. He was very depressed at that point. But in addition, you know, it really seemed like the beginning of intellectual decline and effort decline as these things accumulated for him in his brain. But prior to that, it does seem as though his character, his life experience, his identifications, and perhaps even really specifically his bipolar disorder lent themselves to his incredible works, his production, his originality. The Mm -hmm. the way he wrote was not the way people wrote at that time. And that may have a lot to do with actually struggling and having episodes of hypomania. Yeah, the literary career is really instructive, I think, because you're right, around 1950, which is roughly when he turned 50, and he has his biggest manic period ever. All the hallmarks are there, you know, spending, grandiosity, all sorts of things. But he writes like the worst novel. But at that point, he has such a bad episode that he's actually having some psychotic symptoms. And one thing that's really important is to understand that when you have bipolar disorder, if you're mildly to moderately hypomanic, you can actually be more creative than somebody who has no mental illness. But if you're severely manic, meaning you have psychotic symptoms, you've lost touch with reality, then probably not at all because your ability to take whatever's in your mind and organize it enough to put it down on a page is really impaired. So he wrote poems during this time and he wrote those two stories and they were awful. And it really went downhill from there. He was trying to write the, another bullfight book from Spain in the last years of his life and he could barely put together a paragraph. And then in the middle of that, he writes Old Man in the Sea, which I'm not a fan of, but it's very compact, very measured, and it's profound in its own way. But it is important to know that when he wrote that, which was his last book, again, he made a decision to do a couple of things. He stopped drinking. He completely stopped drinking for that period of time. 
He worked out. He lost weight. He went into, as he described it, quote, training, that this was his way of trying to get back. And he went into training and he wrote that in six weeks, which just goes to show the impact of all of the accumulation that if he removed some of the insults like alcohol and sleeping, and, you know, we know that that can help mental health considerably, even when you have a diagnosis like bipolar disorder and take care of yourself, that he could write that. You know, it might not be the one we all love the most of Hemingway, but it still was quite a substantial work in six weeks. And in one clean, sat down and wrote it. He did. And that's right. And he was able to do that, you know, a few years down the road, and he's not able to make himself come back. I mean, by this point, it's overdetermined, right? Because He's an alcoholic. He can't live without alcohol, really. And he's also taking all kinds of medications. It starts to be a factor of incalculable damage to him. Well, he starts to actually try to get psychiatric treatment. He actually gets electroconvulsive therapy, which despite its terrible rap and people see it movies and think it's terrifying, is actually a really excellent treatment for psychotic depression or psychotic mania and can be life-saving and organizing. It can cause short-term memory problems. It doesn't cause long-term memory problems. Usually the short-term memory problems resolve, but it can be life-saving. And at that juncture, he was recurrently suicidal and he basically had life-threatening psychiatric illness at that point. So understandable that he was given ECT, not to mention the fact that it was frankly one of the few treatments available, period. There was very little else. And so it did seem to, at least in the short run, help him somewhat. But unfortunately, he had accrued so much injury. And then he has these two plane crashes, which is unbelievable, where he has further really severe head trauma. He basically enters a period where he's got cirrhosis, he's got high blood pressure, He's got organic brain damage and he really can't think or concentrate, though he's won the Nobel Prize in literature. He is certainly living his life and doing outdoorsy things. But at that point, he dives into this just high, high risk period for suicide, which is so tragic that he's in the hospital. He's writing hopeful letters, but he really can't recover. No, and he can't even, he tries to return on... John F. Kennedy's invitation to the inauguration, and he can't put together a sentence. Now, a couple of things that electric shock therapy, it is often effective for traumatic brain injury. His son, Patrick, hit his head and had a full-blown psychosis, depression. Hemingway kept his son at home because he knew if Patrick went into a mental hospital that combative that he would be beaten to death. But so Ernest and some of his friends had to hold Patrick down. This went on for weeks and weeks and then months. I didn't know what else to do. And he had electric shock therapy and he was better. It is sometimes effective with traumatic brain injury. And his other son, Gregory, was really mentally ill and had many, many shock treatments during his lifetime. But no, Ernest shuts down. It's just horrible that last year. The only thing is he did write something right before that, which is that really lovely book about Paris when he was young. And, you know, with Gertrude Stein in it, F. Scott Fitzgerald, it's all Paris in the 20s. It's happy. It's beautifully written. It's so lyrical. It's what you give any young person you know who is going to Paris. That's what you give them. And he wrote that at the very end. And that's just confounding. I guess from what you've been saying is he was very resilient, that things that were wrong with him 
had almost in their definition that you would bounce back. But it's a beautiful book. I mean, it's full of lies. It's all, you can't, none of it, it's totally unreliable. By then he couldn't tell the difference between lying and telling the truth, but that's just befuddling. It is. And actually, it, it unfortunately, it does leave us all to wonder, had he lived, you know, what he might have continued to write or been able to do. Certainly those around him tried to save him. They tried to keep him in the hospital on the final, the day before the final day. He insisted, you know, on leaving. And he was even really being watched. But really, it was the day after hospital discharge that he kills himself. You know, unfortunately, somebody who is horribly, horribly depressed and not really recovered, post-discharge is the high-risk time for suicide. And sadly, that probably not understood as well in those days, but sadly, you also can't necessarily keep someone against their will unless you can prove they are an eminent risk to themselves. So he sadly did go home and kill himself. I think that if you could almost think of his motto toward the end there, he writes in Old Man in the Sea, but man is not made for defeat. A man can be destroyed and not defeated. And it seems as though to him, suicide didn't seem like destruction. It might have been destruction, but it didn't seem to be defeat. Yeah, that's a nice point. I think that's largely true. I think he was beyond reason at the end. I, when I kind of understood the nature of his depression, he was coming, he went to the Mayo Clinic. That's where he was getting treatment because it had a regular hospital and he could claim it was for physical ills. They didn't want anyone to know that he was getting any kind of psychiatric treatment. But anyway, he went there a couple of times and he'd fly there on a small plane. Somebody he knew would fly him over there and they'd have to stop to fuel because he did in those days. And apparently one of these stops Hemingway was, you know, out of the uh, airplane. It took a while. And he tried to walk into the propeller. And that's when I understood there was something called psychotic depression. And this was it, because that's beyond suicide. Sadly, a couple of things happen in the setting of what do sound like psychotic depression as part of bipolar disorder to him, which was, as you point out, this irrational drive towards suicide. It wasn't just, I really want to end this pain or thought through. It was very impulsive. And in addition, he had a tremendous amount of paranoia toward the end of his life, right? That he really thought people were out to get him and had great fears about that. And Unfortunately, that kind of paranoia can also drive suicidal behavior as you try to escape from the terror of whatever you believe is coming after you. And it does seem that he just was so overwrought by so so much of this toward the end. I think that we will end it there. I do want to say, though, that though it was very tragic at the end, and it really, really is, he in many ways, for someone with the battles that he had, led a very courageous life that he did manage to be incredibly observant of daily things. And that is part of what, as you pointed out, made his writing so remarkable. And that he used writing somewhat as an antidote for his depression and healing by observing and immersing himself in nature was one of the ways he really tried to grapple. I think so. I think it was a remarkable life. You know, he changed the face of American literature. He really did. He had a wonderful life in many ways. I mean, that kind of that decade in Paris in the 20s, you know, usually you just get one decade like that. But he followed it with these, you know, times in Cuba and Key West and living kind of on the water. And he suffered terribly later, but it's a remarkable life. It's a remarkable life with mental illness, but that actually helped him 
to become, uh, frankly, the genius producer that he was and left us with these iconic works that have changed all of us. Thank you so much for having that discussion with me. Such an amazing figure to talk about, really. And a big thank you to my guest, Mary Dearborn. If you want to learn more about Ernest Hemingway, check out her most recent book, Ernest Hemingway, A Biography. Personology is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Dr. Gail Saltz and Tyler Klang. The associate producer is Lowell Berlanti. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. endless diets and weight loss struggles it's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results introducing smart metabolic burn from brain md your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat imagine burning fat balancing glucose levels and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks this unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula berberine which targets abdominal fat and oea which curbs your appetite with just two capsules a day Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Are you feeling overwhelmed by anxiety, struggling to find restful sleep, or plagued by a restless inability to focus? It's time to break free from the chains of mental health challenges and discover a path to healthy living. Welcome to Amen University, founded by renowned psychiatrist and brain health expert, Dr. Daniel Amen. Dr. Amen, alongside a team of esteemed doctors and experts in their fields, understands the struggles you're facing and are here to offer solutions. From debilitating anxiety to sleepless nights filled with worry, our courses are meticulously crafted to target these specific challenges head on. Join us on a journey of transformation led by Dr. Amen and a roster of top-tier professionals. Say goodbye to the constant battle with your mind and embrace a future filled with hope and possibility. Visit our website today to explore our courses and start your journey towards a brighter tomorrow. Use code BRAIN10 and get 10% off. That's code BRAIN10 and get 10% off your first purchase. Amen University, because your mental health matters. Business. It's all the things that keep this world turning. And behind every one of these companies is a partner helping to keep it all moving. It's why the local flower shop and your favorite pizza joint, the startup and the stadium, hospitals and hotels, banks and restaurants nationwide, all choose the advanced network, cybersecurity solutions, and round-the-clock trusted partnership from Comcast Business, the company that powers more businesses than anyone else. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Restrictions apply. Call or visit ComcastBusiness.com to learn more.